0: And welcome to Burn Your Draft, the podcast exploring the Reed College thesis process and experience. I'm your host and producer, Tommy Schacht, and for this episode, I got to talk with David Rothfels about his ad hoc archaeometry thesis. He has a fun little story about how he came up with his thesis topic. He was on an archaeological dig site, and I guess you could say he really stepped in it. Panic ensues, there were some concerns about wild boars, keep listening to hear how it turned out.
1: My name is David Rothfels. I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am in both the GLAM, which is the Greek, Latin, and Ancient Mediterranean Studies Department, as well as the Chem Department. The name of my thesis is hoping to smash DNA with rocks and pickaxes. I have two thesis advisors. One is Ellen Millinder in the GLAM department, and the other is Daniel Cass in the chem department.
0: Okay, cool. Let's talk about your thesis. Can you give me a brief summary yeah. of what it's about?
1: <laughs> yeah, it, so I study archaeometry, which is a field that applies scientific analysis to archaeology in order to bolster conclusions. And big buzzwords are like carbon dating, DNA sequencing and stuff. So I looked at ancient DNA, which is DNA that's been in the ground anywhere from 100 years to 5,000 years. I was looking at whether or not the excavation process could harm ancient DNA. That was basically looking at every single bond in DNA in between each of these atoms. And I looked at the specific strength of each of those bonds and how much force do it take to break them? Nice. And it, it was fun because it's not a question that we ask in chemistry because we don't smash our substances. Sure. We like put them in we put them in soups and then hope that they change, right? But this is an interesting form of solid state physical chemistry that doesn't have a lot of research, so it was a lot of more experimentation on my end. And the entire idea was trying to come out with some idea of whether or not we need to be more careful or even less careful with the excavation process of ancient DNA.
0: Interesting. Um, Can you tell me some examples of places where ancient DNA would be found?
1: Yeah. The whole reason why this idea came to me was because I was at this dig in 2019 on this site. And normally, everyone is outside of the pit. Right. We were all supposed to be eating, but the photographer for the dig saw that I was like blotchy and sweaty and covered in dirt. And they're like, we need pictures from you. And I'm like, okay. (laughs)
0: Great. I'm the most flattering.
1: I'm like covered in dirt and sweat with a pickaxe as they want me to. But I'm not thinking because I'm also hungry and thirsty because I'm late for my breakfast break. And my friend, I stepped in her ancient DNA site and both of us start screaming and crying. (laughs) And everyone else in the dig gets really scared because they think that we like saw a boar. (laughs) because there's there's wild boars and they get really big and if they fall into our pit they get really stressed out very quickly and it just and is that like like the
0: protocol if one comes up is you start screaming and crying
1: someone might be hit by one and then they start screaming and crying but yeah so everyone was very confused and we were very destroyed about this because in archaeology when so much of we touch like pottery and brittle stuff that has been stuck underground for ages if you step on something it's broken and That vessel shape is no longer there. It's no longer the same. And so our brains, which are limited as humans, thought, oh, because we step on pottery and it breaks. If we step on DNA, it must also break. But as we thought about it, the two of us talked about it, we're like, maybe that wasn't something that we actually should have been concerned about because it's so small and isn't this rigid structure like pottery. It's basically just like string. So my whole idea was. Can you break bonds at the like microscopic level, uh, atomic level? And was this a concern that we had or was it just a misconception? Because that means that maybe we don't have to be as careful with ancient DNA recovery.
0: That's a great story. What was the actual material? Is it just like dirt that's on the ground that the DNA is on? That you- yeah.
1: Ancient DNA studies started in like the late 90s. And almost all DNA sampling was directly from bones. It's much more likely to preserve and to not be damaged by the environment. But nowadays, we're able to be a lot more discerning and our techniques have gotten a lot better. So you can just sample the dirt from the field or you expect the person to be or the trash pile or whatever, and then look for ancient DNA within it. So this thing that I stepped on wasn't like a bone. It was literally just like a piece of dirt where we expected human DNA to be. And that's why I was also very much not in the conscious mind of, oh, yeah, this is a place I have to be careful about stepping around, right? And I specifically for this was looking into what error do we introduce by the excavation process in general? Maybe there's other errors. Maybe stepping on ground that has ancient DNA below it, even before we get to it, is actually causing damage to it so i wanted to investigate it so in dna you have the structure of the line and then you have these nucleotides coming off the side of it and when you're looking at ancient dna it's understood to be fractured or not as long as you would expect modern dna just because it's it's no longer in chromosomal shape all bound together and so you're literally looking at between 50 to 150 to 500 base pairs which is at most, like as long as maybe a quarter of your finger, you're looking at very little. You do test to extract the DNA from the dirt that are very similar to forensic science practices that are used to solve crime scenes. And then, at least in archaeology, we run it through PCR, which basically makes more of the data. It's basically... There's a little bit that it would be hard to identify, but then when we amplify it with PCR, we're able to see the data better. With PCR, you're always comparing what you find with something. And so if you're looking for specifically human DNA, you can put in the human markers that you're looking for and then see if that is present in the ancient DNA. Same thing if you're looking for plant DNA. Are we looking for ancient maize? Okay, then let's look for this specific ancient maize and compare it to the PCR test, right? So a big part in archaeology is that our samples are so small and limited that they're very precious, right? PCR is kind of a magic tool because we are able to just copy that information effectively. The point is, with with DNA, there's a lot of extra variables that come in because it is so small. So my thesis was trying to add nuance to the discussion.
0: Did you know you wanted to do archaeometry when you came
1: to read? Yes and no. I was always interested in chemistry. I have been doing chemical research since I was 15 or 16 and was always interested in archaeology and history. My dad is like the family historian. And so like when we found like a family artifact... I was always interested when he was like, oh yeah, this is a thing that like your great grandfather had. And I'm like, wow, that's so cool. I was always interested in like this material culture and I was like chemistry and I didn't realize that I could mix the both of them. And when it comes to like read and me getting in, I really didn't think I would get in. I had really bad grades in high school. I had over a thousand absences. Even though I've been doing like chemistry research in in high school, I was not a good student. And I was shocked that I got into Reed. read when I was shocked that they gave me financial aid. (laughs) I I, I would need it regardless to go here. But it was like, wow, they're giving me financial aid to go here too. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, I think there's now one or two other students from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. But when I came in, I was the only person from my city. I also had my research professor my sophomore year back in 2018 for the summer. And she was like, I think that you're interested in archaeometry. And I'm like, what's that? I have no idea what you're talking about. Turns out I am <laughs> interested you're in right. what... <laughs> Yeah, she fully saw it. She started me on this path. And the more and more I looked at it, the more I just couldn't look away. When I got to read and I was talking to professors, many of them referred me to the ad hoc program, which is where you take two majors and make it into one major, which is what my major is. And a big part of this is that you are no longer doing two theses like you would with a double major, which is not something that I could handle. You actually do one thesis across both departments. The ad hoc program is something that almost entirely has been done within the same division. So, really common ones, ones that have been made into full majors, are neuroscience and BMB, which is biology and molecular biology, and math and physics and computer science and any STEM or history and literature or lit, like all those are technically ad hoc or is, or started as ad hocs. But I was stupid. And I was like, you know what, I want to do it between divisions. It'll be just as easy, right? Wrong. And basically the entire ad hoc process at every single step of the way, me, my professors, my departments, my divisions, and the administrators realized that there wasn't much precedent. And consequently, there wasn't a lot of guidance for us, which created problems. The reality of the situation is, this is me orchestrating between myself, my professors, two departments, two divisions, the registrar's office, and admin, right? And that's a lot of people on different time structures that just makes things a lot more difficult to schedule and makes it a lot harder to get things going. But... It's a thing that I'm still very happy that I did.
0: What are the components that you had to present when you were proposing?
1: So I had an initial proposal where I said, this is my proposed major. It relates to this field. And I want to have a major in this field because it will help me fit into the academic community in it better. And then I would have to describe the goals of the major, which is I want to learn these things, chemical analysis, and I want to learn archaeological analysis so that I can marry the two of them. I then had to lay out every single class I had to take between both majors, which I had to negotiate with both departments and and divisions. Do you have to
0: do all of the requirements for the majors?
1: Not all of them. Part of the ad hoc process is that you don't have to essentially do a double major. Then I had to negotiate between the two divisions how all of those would fit into my distribution requirements, which is group one, two, and three. I also compared this major that I created to other majors that existed at other universities. I also had to prove that I have made significant effort. And how I did that was like, I've done archaeological research. I've done chemical research. I've done research that involves both of them. I needed to prove that I had a plan going into this. I knew what I wanted to work on and that I had thought through this extensively, that the courses that I had taken at Reed were already going down this path. That was used to also bolster my argument. I don't know if you need all of those things. That's what I did. It depends on what the situation is and what you're trying to study and what you're trying to do, right? It it was a lot of work, but I'm very happy with it, basically. I think that interdisciplinary research is the future of academia very much. I think that it's important that this be an avenue that is open to students. I know of other people who wanted to do an ad hoc similar to mine. I know of like three to four people who just decided they didn't want to deal with the whole ad hoc process. And and the thing about it is that there's just so little precedent, right? Yeah. I know a big exception, for me at least, was honestly because I had worked with this professor in 2018. And she, the research project that I was doing with her, was already archaeometry-based. And because I had had that experience, I think it was a lot easier for me to push myself through it. It needs to be... A very driven thing. And I started it my sophomore year and didn't get it fully solidified, honestly, until my senior year back in 2021, about. But we also now do have minors, which didn't exist when I came into Reed. There was no minors. That's kind
0: of wild. I feel like that was not yeah. that long ago.
1: To be fair, although it's only been six years, a lot has happened in those six years. And so, like, when I came into Reed, if you were to do something interdisciplinary, You would do your major and then do a thesis that would involve interdisciplinary stuff, but it wouldn't be associated with the other department. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the argument that both me and my advisors had to contend with when I was doing my ad hoc thesis was other archaeometrists just have a chemistry major or an archaeology major. Why do you need both? Why do you need one together? Honestly, the bigger thing about it was that the reality is archaeometry majors, although not common in America, are very common outside of America. And because I'm probably going to be interacting with that world, having one that reflected that was very important going forward. For um, sure.
0: If a student was looking to do an ad hoc, do you have to declare it when you declare your major? Is it by a certain time?
1: Yes. So a big thing that we have at Reed is declaring your major by junior year because of our qual process. You can change your major after a qual, but they want to have your qual aligning with your major when you're doing it. Because I got started early enough, by the time of my qual, I was able to say that I am a declared prospective chemistry archaeology major by that point. COVID started when I was a junior, so that everything was fine and said everything's not. And I'm like doing my qual with my computer as the Zoom link. Thankfully we don't have to do do that anymore. For my qual process for Glam, I also had to write a paper and that one I actually really loved. But I learned a bad practice in that paper where because I'm explaining so many concepts to other people, I got very much in the habit of making figures obsessively because I had to explain what crystal refraction was to my archeologist professor. Something that I barely understand, right? And so making an image of my understanding and then explaining that image is very easy. But it did turn my thesis into almost every single paragraph having a figure, which I do feel bad about because I feel like that doesn't work well as a final product. I also feel like it became a crutch.
0: Can you tell me about working on your thesis? What would an average day look like? Would you be like writing in the lab? Little bit of both? Yeah,
1: yeah. For my thesis, there was basically... Three steps that I outlined at the beginning, which was making an argument that DNA requires different care than excavation of pottery or metals or the standard things that we take out. This had a lot of research that I could draw from and was more of a lit review. And then my next step was the actual testing, which first involved chemical modeling, which is where you create a chemist or a molecule within a computer program and then it tells you it does math for you. For something as big as DNA, which per base pair, which is like a phosphate, a sugar and a nucleotide. Okay. And at the range of DNA, which is like thousands of them. So I would have to calculate over a thousand bonds, right? Which I couldn't do. And so I used this chemical modeling software to do it for me, thank God. And then I would analyze those bonds and then find out which ones were weak to prove that weakness occurs. I would change the chemistry of the molecule, which is how the atoms arrange themselves in it and how chemical reactions change the molecule. I had to make arguments that all of these different reactions could occur and are understandable at the over a thousand year time scale that I was looking at for ancient DNA. And then after modeling all of those, I would say, okay, As DNA ages, these bonds get weaker. Cool. Let's see if we can break them. And then I I had to plan on a way to see the DNA, which I did through this thing called HPLC, high-performance liquid chromatography, which I won't get into too much. It basically is our way to see whether or not the nucleotides remain as the nucleotides or if things are fracturing off or being broken. Then my third step would be analyzing those chemical results as results and changes that we need to make in archaeology or concerns about ancient DNA analysis that has been done. In my thesis, I only got to the chemical modeling and I barely got to putting things in the HPLC because it's, it, it's a lot of work and, I, a lot, and, and there's and there's a lot more stuff that is happening in your senior year. Other stuff gets in the way, unfortunately, so I wasn't able to do everything that I wanted to. But a big process that helped me was basically, this is going to be a glam day. This is going to be a day where I focus on archaeology. This is going to be a chem day. I'm going to focus specifically on the chemistry. And this is going to be a day when I'm looking at both of them together because my thesis is marrying them.
0: Can you give me a rough outline of your timeline, which I understand might look different from the average read students, yeah. but...
1: So I had all the requirements that both humanities majors, Litton-Lang majors, and m which is Maths and Natural Sciences majors had. So, I had to have my first chapter turned in by the end of the first semester, which I did and I had my mini orals on it. And then I wanted to have had started testing at that point, but I was not done with my chemical modeling because even though I have been chemical modeling nonstop, each modeling process would take anywhere from like five to seven hours. Like per molecule, and I I did over fifty, and then I had to correct them. I can't do it on my laptop because if I'm moving around, it stops because of Wi-Fi dead zones. Oh. It's all great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of long nights just like staring at a computer waiting for it to be done. And then I had my chemical modeling done by like end of January, early February, and then I made an HPLC method by the end of February, and then I got my samples at the beginning of March and then I had to be done with all my testing by spring break which is like mid-March so I had to finish there which was unfortunate.
0: Tight turnaround.
1: Yeah. I'm still happy with what I did. I just wish I could have done more but I was always going to wish that I could have done more.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Did you encounter any unexpected challenges during your thesis process besides COVID? Yeah. So
1: actually I was slated to graduate fall 2021. And in the final semester of my senior year in fall 2021, I got hospitalized, mostly bedridden, hospitalized. Where, weird thing. I got strep throat. I ignored it. And I was like, I'll deal with it if it gets bad. And this is going to be scary. (laughs) I'm sorry, hypochondriacs, but this is not a thing that's going to happen to you. Okay. Just believe that. Okay. okay? (laughs) But I had a super rare crossover event where a virus that is native and lives only in strep throat crossed over to me. And because I don't have strep throat cells, it didn't know what to do. And so it panicked and freaked out. And this is what the neurologist told me. Basically, apparently, it severed the nerve connections between my inner ear and my brain. Oh, wow. Um, And so I couldn't, I could barely stand, walk, or stay awake for more than three hours. That's insane. I'm
0: so sorry.
1: Yeah. And because it is a brain injury, the more you exasperate it, the worse it gets. Yeah. And so like, I was just like, I'm going to push through it. I'm almost done with my senior year, which is a very bad idea. And so (laughs) what ended up happening was I I got to like the fall break and my thesis advisors and my professors were like, You don't seem okay when we see you. And I'm like, I think I'm fine. And they're like, you're only awake for three hours a day. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not missing class. And they're like, no. (laughs) Thanks so much to my advisors, Tom Loundvater, Dan Garrity, and my professor, Kambis Ganabatsiri, for telling me, you should stop. (laughs) (laughs) I was conscious of a problem end of October, And by like November 10th, they were like, you need to stop. And so then I took a medical leave. I had to go back home because I don't have health insurance out here. I don't have much memory of that time. I do know that I was home for Thanksgiving and I wasn't contagious. I just had a broken brain. It it turned out everything was fine. What it was presented to me as from the doctors was that we don't know what it is because we can't see it. We can't see damage being done right at this moment. We just know that you're damaged. And so all you can do is do this physical therapy and you'll get better. And we don't know how long it'll take for you to get better. And we don't know how easy it will be for you to get better. But if you just keep on working on it, you will get better. My initial plan was that, okay, I'll go home, get fixed, and I'll be back in the spring. Right? I didn't think that I also had to take spring off, but I just felt like it's gone on forever. It's something that I learned a lot from and... Honestly, actually being forced to just like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go back. I don't know if that's just over for me. Having that like liminal space maybe be like, no, I want to go back. I care a lot about what I study and I really want to come back here. I had to do like four to six months of physical therapy to basically regrow the connection between my ear and my brain. And now I can't drive really because... My, my center of balance is just off. I'm just more prone to falling. It's just something that I'm learning to deal with, but it's not like a significant disability or anything. Um, it's basically that I'm just starting out with a toddler brain connection again, except because I'm an adult human, my body still knows how to walk. So then it just had to tell my brain, no, we're okay. We're walking and it's okay. Anyway, after all that was done, I came back going from a time of such inaction. Just going full tilt back into a senior year was a lot. My professors helped me a lot, feeling like they cared that I was getting better. And because I basically done a full senior thesis, continuing where I had left off was inequitable. And I wasn't in love with my old thesis topic anyway. And I wasn't really happy with where I was going. So this is not your first thesis. No, this is my second thesis. And although I was happy to start over in a certain way, it was also a gut punch to just just, I had to do this all over again. And it was something that I had to deal with mentally. And I had therapy and I had a great support system, which helped a lot.
0: I usually ask people if you could go back and redo your thesis, what would you do? But you did.
1: <laughs> I did. <laughs> do did you
0: do anything differently on purpose the second time?
1: My first thesis was very, a lot more chemistry based than this one. It was analyzing whether you could properly test for both organics and inorganics on pottery using Raman spectroscopy, which is a form of laser spectroscopy that we do in chemistry. Cool. It was very technical and it ended up with me not really going into a lot of the archaeology of it. What I like to study is how we minimize destruction of artifacts in general. And I ended up really not liking it because instead of feeling like it turning into a way to minimize the destruction of artifacts, it just felt like I was making a magic cure so that all artifacts can be destructively analyzed, which I really didn't like. And so this way, I liked taking a more non-destructive angle, which made me feel a lot better.
0: So what's the answer? Does stepping on the thing make it break?
1: The biggest conclusion that I had was from my modeling, which showed that I can't say whether or not stepping on a bond would break it, because I wasn't able to get to that point. But I was able to say that if stepping on a bond does break it, this is a huge problem for DNA. I found that one of the weakest bonds will interfere with the PCR step, which means that we could actually be losing the information that we need. I don't know if stepping on DNA hurts it. That's a great question. But if it does, then it's a very dangerous thing. Yeah, because there are lots of bonds that you could break... In DNA and a lot of them wouldn't affect your analysis and you would be able to get the same results. But what I found was that there are a few bonds that if they do break and they are very likely to break especially after the aging process that there's a really big issue. I just wish I could have investigated more but I saw that those were the weak bonds and that those weak bonds were very inert chemically. If they are going to break you could actually make an argument that they're most likely to break through, like, physical pressure, right? I I talked to a lot of chemists about, can you break a bond by stepping on it? And it was funny how basically every single prep professor and every single student had a different perspective and answer to it. It, It's just not something that we think about in chemistry, because why would you step on your (laughs) sample? But it's a thing that you have to consider in my field, right? In my field, in the field. It was a very crazy experience to have something that I could be like, oh, maybe this is a real concern that we need to have. The biggest question that I wasn't able to answer that I really wish I could was, could you actually break it through physical pressure, which sucks. But if you can, it's a problem, which is actually a very exciting discovery. Yay.
0: Okay. Do you have any plans for post-read summer after job stuff?
1: Yeah, I'm moving. And I have been living in Portland nonstop for six years. And I have lots of feelings about the city, but I'm very excited to go back home. I'm very excited to make some money because it is much cheaper to live in Milwaukee than Portland. Between having to take another semester, because this is technically my ninth semester instead of my um, eighth, and having medical bills and stuff, I would like to actually have an opportunity to make money and hold on to it, right? And then I have a program that I'm planning on taking this fall, which is a cultural research management program where I basically get a degree that says hey you can hold culture without destroying it and then i can like start interacting with museums and conservationists i i either want to go into artifact conservation or ideally i would continue the research that i do where i try to figure out ways to minimize the destruction of artifacts when as they undergo chemical analysis but that's all very far in the future this summer's just like a fun break from everything
0: It sounds like what you want to do long term is very in line with your thesis work. Yes. Did your thesis impact that? Was that, had that always been your plan?
1: I had always been planning to do this research, but I had almost entirely understood that research to be based on doing inorganic analysis. I did not do well inorganic chemistry. I am an analytical chemist, but I chose this thesis because in the last one also, I had come in with a lot of background knowledge, so it also just felt like I'm just like writing stuff that I already know, but because I literally had not touched biology since freshman year of high school. I was very much, I'm not going to touch organics, I'm not going to touch biology. That's not my thing. But now I might. I I honestly would love to continue looking into this project.
0: Sounds like you're a little more open-minded. Final question. Is there anyone you want to thank or acknowledge for helping you with the thesis process?
1: Yes. I first would like to extend a million thank yous to everyone in the registrar's office, but especially Ben and Mark, who have been instrumental in getting my ad hoc through and basically instrumental in my graduation. I would like to thank specifically Sonia Subness, Ellen Miller and Tom Longwater in the glam department because they were the ones that allowed me to like get my ad hoc approved and I would give them a petition and I'd be like, okay, we need to change it. I was looking through all my petitions and I'm like, how many did I do? And I did like over 24 while I was at Reed. And I literally couldn't get any of this done without them. And so I am so overwhelmingly thankful to them. And I wish I could pay them for all the extra hours that they put in dealing with my stuff if I had that money. I would also on the chem side as well, like to thank Dan Garrity and Daniel Cass As well as Arthur Glasfeld and a few other professors who no longer work at Reed, Anthony Carrascollo, Natasha Schwartz, and Julie Fry, who all also helped me through this ad hoc process and very much supported my research and allowed me to do all of this. As well as just the Glam and Chem departments because it's very easy when you're an interdisciplinary major to just feel like you don't belong, belong in either department, but both the staff faculty and students in both departments just made me feel so incredibly welcomed and included, which was always very heartwarming. Thank you so much for this interview. I was very excited for it.
0: Thank you, David, for sharing about your particularly unique thesis process and all the work that went into it both times. And thank you guys for listening. I hope you'll join us again next time to talk to more readies about their theses and better understand just why you want to burn your draft. Burn Your Draft is a production of Reed College and the Center for Life Beyond Reed, created jointly by students, alumni, and staff. This episode was produced and engineered by me, Reed College student Tommy Schacht. Our executive producer is Seth Paskin, class of 1990, with technical advising from staff member Joe Janica. Nate Martin, staff member in class of 2016, is our project manager. Music by Jack Salvucci, class of 2020, and podcast art by alumni Henry Gotchlik and Lillian Fam, class of 2020. This podcast was made possible by a gift from Seth Paskin.